Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. In this podcast, I speak to Thomas Williams, PhD. Dr. Williams is the founder and director of The Point Institute, a virtual community committed to examining and disseminating the evidence behind nutraceuticals and natural therapies for optimal use in clinical practice. Dr. Williams earned his doctorate from the Medical College of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he studied molecular immunology. Since 1996, he has spent his time studying the mechanisms and actions of natural-based therapies and is an expert in the therapeutic uses of nutritional supplements. Tom teaches at the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy and at the University of Minnesota School of Pharmacy. He's a faculty member of the Metabolic Medicine Institute, where he has an appointment as the clinical instructor at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Dr. Williams was kind enough to spend some time with me when he was in Australia for the A5M conference in Melbourne. In this podcast, we explore the concept of adrenal fatigue. We question whether adrenal exhaustion really exists in a way that is typically described in natural medicine. In this podcast, Dr. Williams outlines the HBA dysfunction and how stress can lead to a maladaptive HBA response. We explore the benefits and limitations of cortisol testing, look at the research into the mechanisms of adaptogenic herbs, and discuss a few of his favourite strategies for treating HBA dysfunction. Without further ado, here's Dr. Williams. Thanks a lot for coming today, Dr. Williams. So today we wanted to talk about one of the topics you're speaking here about at the A5M, about um, adrenal fatigue, or the concept of adrenal fatigue. You've been uh, looking at this probably the best part of 20 years, and and you've got somewhat of a a different view on perhaps what practitioners would traditionally view adrenal fatigue as, as the, to want a better term, the adrenal glands burning out and not producing enough uh, cortisol. So would you be able to explain briefly your model, and we'll dive into the, the minutiae shortly, but the overview of why you'd bother to sort of, you know, review this and why it's so important, I suppose, to, for us to reframe this right. um, situation? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think the, the concept of adrenal fatigue, even though it's very popular, very well known in the integrated medicine, even what's a functional medicine and anti-aging community, it's really not a term that's used really at all in, in the research community looking at stress or stress-related issues, even when that's related to low cortisol levels, meaning um, there's lots of research on how stress can change cortisol levels, um, in, in many cases lowering them over time, but never is that described as adrenal fatigue in the literature. And some would say that's because you know these researchers don't know what they're talking about, but as it turns out, um, in, in most instances, in fact, in, in, I'd say the primary case, when you have stress-induced changes in cortisol, it has nothing to do with the adrenal gland inability to produce cortisol. It's really the brain uh, and other, other systems, but primarily the hypothalamus, reducing um, the stress response. And it's really, it's an adaption, an adaptation to chronic stress. And so, um, while we so we measure an adrenal hormone and so we assume that it's the adrenal glands function that we're measuring but really we're measuring sort of this broad understanding the stress response most of which is controlled in the brain so that's one of the reasons i think it's helpful to sort of change the nomenclature 
Um, of course, um, I've been recommending a number of different things, but HPA axis dysfunction is probably the most general term to use when we see changes, either elevations or, or uh, in, in cortisol or, or de decrease in cortisol or hypersensitivities or, or all these sorts of things that we'll, we'll maybe get into a little more here later. But um, really, we should be more specific. We should, if it's low cortisol, we should just say, it's low cortisol, hypocortisol. And, and until we understand why that is, we shouldn't necessarily try to tag it. And I would say adrenal fatigue in the sense that we believe the adrenal glands can't make cortisol is probably should be off the list of things that we think about at least initially. Sure. So how do you think we got to this point? I know there's the Hans Selye, you know, um, three stages of um, stress, I suppose, that uh, characterize this sort of... Um progression of the adrenal glands obviously in you know oversimplification in, in rat models and so forth do you think that's where it came from this notion that the adrenals uh you know essentially atrophied and no longer produce cortisone cortisol um you know i i don't know all the things that led to it i think hans salier's uh model uh, led to a lot of oversimplification i think in in his model in particular he had obviously animals that had that that were put under stressful conditions that they had no control over um, and that sort of i think spawned I, I actually think that that sort of spawned this idea of a three-stage model in humans um, which may or may not be the case um, and um, but I think probably what more, more led to this idea of adrenal fatigue probably came more from the idea of a pancreatic model, where the pancreas does then fatigue, or basically because of oxidative damage, some of the tissues are no longer able, you know, beta cell dysfunction essentially creates um, a, an, an inability to produce enough endogenous insulin to overcome insulin resistance. So that model uh, may have been inadvertently kind of thought of as, as maybe a way to understand what the adrenal glands are going through. Um, but uh, as it turns out, that's pretty much not the case. Um, I mean, it's possible, obviously, to have adrenal dysfunction um, or adrenal exhaustion in a, in a kind of a mechanical way, but that's usually not driven by stress. Sure. Okay, so let's uh, explore your position with the you know, HPA access dysfunction. And as you said, I think it's fascinating that you maybe more of an adaptive response we um recently had a seminar looking at the i suppose glucocorticoid excitotoxicity um from bruce McEwen and robert sapolsky about how that it can really damage the hippocampus and uh, uh um, correct me if i'm wrong but i sort of sense that the hba sort of um down regulation is almost a protective mechanism to try and prevent this um you know damaging effect of excess glucocorticoids Right, so I mean, cortisol is a powerful uh, glucocorticoid, powerful hormone in the body, um, and there's several ways that the cells can can regulate or, or protect themselves. We have cortisol or corticosterone binding globulin, so there's a binding globulin that prevents excessive levels from and uh, from you know triggering the, the tissue effects of glucocorticoids, and certain tissues actually can produce their own cortisol binding globulin. So there's a number of different ways that the cells can protect themselves. And if you, and if you follow those carefully as stress progresses, you can see that those things do kick in. Uh, people with PTSD, for instance, have low cortisol levels because they're trying to protect themselves. They have very high cortisol binding, glo uh, binding globulin typically. And so they're trying to compensate. They actually have very high DHEA as well because they're also trying to protect themselves from any 
any uh, cortisol that's there. So this is an adaptive response um, in the tissues and, and in the brain. Um, and as it turns out, there's, I think, a, a, one of the leading theories for hypocortisol, low cortisol levels with chronic stress, is mostly to do with the adaptation in the brain um, to sense, via the feedback inhibition, sense cortisol, where even at low levels, as being too much and, and keeping the HPA axis very um, inactive so that more cortisol doesn't come out. And so we think of that as being protective against you know, memory loss and all kinds of other issues that may be driving that, including insulin resistance. Mm. That's uh, fascinating. And I suppose you know, this is not just academic, because I really want to sort of tease out the, the clinical um, relevance as if, uh, you know, if we just hypothetically just tried to raise cortisol in this um, scenario, could we actually be doing more damage if we're not if the body's deliberately trying to diminish the amount of cortisol in different tissues, then just trying to boost, you know, cortisol function could be potentially problematic. Well, I think it depends on how you're going to do it. I think when we see a lot of clinicians, and you know, years ago, um, the, the book by Jeffries that came out about you know safe uses of cortisone or, or safe uses of cortisol, hydrocortisone. Um, and of course, many clinicians use hydrocortisone, I don't know, here in Australia, but in the United States, uh, Cortef or something like that, um, given to patients. Um, and I think many clinicians think, well, if something's low, like maybe testosterone or estrogens, you just, you just supplement. And um, in the case of cortisol, you're going to, you could have the, you know, the opportunity to further downregulate the HPA axis if you don't do that correctly. So. Uh, you know, using lower doses, uh, especially in the morning, uh, you know, dosing in the morning when cortisol is typically higher and really being very nuanced rather than just simply saying, you know, I want your cortisol to a certain level. I'm going to give you this much Cortep and, and then just uh, not realizing that that actually will be a, a potent down regulator of the HPA <laughs> axis if you haven't, you know, let the body readapt to that, you know, adjustment of cortisol. Um, so yeah, I think that that could be a problem. Whether or not other ways of, of doing that down regulates is, is a little bit hard to know. We don't have enough research to know sure. that. Okay, well, uh, we'll talk about testing and treatment shortly. Um, first, I just wanna sit with the um, physiology first. So uh, just let's talk about the cortisol once it is secreted, uh, uh, the free versus bound cortisol. Uh, which will lead him to, you know, which is the best testing, testing methods potentially. So can you tell me about um, free versus bound and the types of bound cortisol? Right. So, well, um, we know that it depends on the, the concentration of cortisol, but the, the majority of cortisol that's produced in the adrenal gland is bound mostly by cortisol binding globulin, some by albumin. So you have a very maybe 5% of the, of the cortisol circulating in the body is in the free form. And most people believe that the free form is the active or the available to the tissue form. Um, there's actually some research showing that cortisol binding globulin may actually be a transporter, not just a, not just a sponge, but actually a transporter to bring cortisol and kind of house it near areas where it may be readily needed, like inflammatory areas, et cetera. Um, but so as it turns out, free cortisol moves into um, moves into the salivary glands. And so whether you're measuring serum-free cortisol or salivary cortisol, you're typically measuring the same thing. Um, so typically what, what most people wanna, wanna know is what is the available free cortisol. 
There are other reasons to, to maybe know total cortisol, but those are more research reasons. I don't think they're, they're as easy to do clinically. Um, and so typically we're not doing total, total serum cortisol um, in, in research settings unless there's a specific reason to do that. And maybe that's because you want to understand the binding globulin formation or something like that. So for the most part in the, in the stress research area where people are looking at how stress causes changes in the HPA axis, salivary cortisol, uh, sometimes urinary cortisol, other things like that are, are where things are at and they really want to know the free cortisol level. Sure, sure, okay. So yeah, the, the common one, the salivary cortisol testing you still think is a valid test tool for conditions traditionally attributed to quote unquote adrenal fatigue. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look in the literature for, uh, the, in the stress-related literature right now, I mean, uh, I, I'm just guessing maybe 80 to 90% of what's being done out there is, is using saliva, um, mostly cortisol, sometimes DHEA or DHEA sulfate um, as a measure over time. Um, so either whether we're talking about the cortisol awakening response or we're talking about diurnal cortisol or we're talking about total cortisol, um, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So uh, there are other things that, that are being looked at in the literature, but I'd say, um, and we, maybe we can get into the, some of the nuances of that, um, but the, the traditional tests that are being done uh, by some of the labs, especially in the United States, and I think many of that are offered here, um, need to be modified, and I think they are being modified uh, to better represent what's happening in the literature. And what do you mean by modified is the, the time points Right. So I, you know, after, because of writing this book, uh, I mean, it's kind of a little bit of an anecdote, but um, years ago I, I advocated to many of the labs individually that I was hoping that they would change some of their tests based on what the literature was saying, um, being more specific about, especially the morning cortisol testing. The first point that they, most of the labs, as you know, do like a four point test, you know, yes. morning, mid-morning, mid mid-afternoon and before bed. And what I, what I discovered was that, especially in the morning test, there was the, the instructions for when to take that first morning cortisol was all over the place. Some would say, you know, between 6 and 8 a.m. Some would say, you know, within the first hour of awakening. And, and that first time point was very, very critical. And um, depending on when you took it would have a dramatic effect because most of the cumulative, you know, of the four points, most of the cortisol that you were measuring was in that first point. So if that was done incorrectly, um, maybe too late after the peak, um, you pretty much get what would look like low cortisol levels, but it was just really a wrong test time. Um, so I began talking to them about that. I been, began talking to labs about offering a true cortisol awakening response. And I can tell you that initially the response was, you know, fairly negative, or at least they didn't really want to get into it. Um, after writing this book, um, I had the opportunity to invite uh, seven of the labs to one meeting in one room, present them this information, and I'm pleased to say that most of them are beginning to change. Some of them have already offer, began offering new tests. Um, they're emphasizing really the, crit the critical point of the first morning cortisol. So we're starting to see, at least in the U.S., and some of those labs are, are, are also available here, I think you're going to start seeing that they're now going to catch up with all I, all I basically did was show them the, the research that's been going on 
uh, for the last 10 years and, and really tell them that I'm going to be telling clinicians about this is what they need to be doing, and so somebody needs to offer these tests to them. And so we're starting to see those changes uh, happening in the U.S. Great. Okay, so tell me about the, the cortisol awake, awakening response. So as I understand, you take a measurement soon after waking and then a, a certain time period afterwards, and it's almost a differential. It's the absolute and the relative difference that right. gives you indication on how the body's responding to stress. Right. So um, as the, you know, the few hours before you're waking up, the circadian rhythm, if you're if you, if you have a good circadian rhythm, um, your, your cortisol is slowly rising because your, your HPA axis is slowly kicking out more, um, more of the signals, more CRH and, and ACTH. But um, as it turns out, part of, your, part of your hypothalamus is putting a break on the adrenal glands, preventing the, all of that ACTH from triggering cortisol, okay? So, and that's part, that's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's the part that's light comes in and, and kind of re- resets the whole circadian rhythm. So if you were to measure somebody's cortisol, it would be slowly rising, slowly rising before they wake up. But as soon as they wake up and, and see light, essentially, they get a, an extra burst of, of cortisol. And we call that the cortisol awakening response. We only get that in the morning when we wake up. So if we take a nap in the afternoon, it doesn't happen because it's tied with the circadian and light at the same time. So in some ways, it acts as a mini... Uh, HPA axis stressor, but I, I call it a, it, it measures the plasticity of awakening as a response, as a stress response. And so um, the only way to really measure that is, well, if you're obviously, if you're, if you're taking blood samples, you could do it that way. But the, really the best way and, and the way it's done in the literature is with, with saliva. So they take a saliva immediately upon awakening, usually the first five minutes, and then most of the time, 15 minutes later, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, and 60 minutes later. But there's a couple of different ways. It's either three or four time points in there. And almost always the peak is going to be at the 30 or 45 minute uh, sample. And then it'll come back down. So you have, you know, this, the baseline where it starts and then that amplitude, how, how far it goes up and then comes back down, it tells you a lot about the dynamic effects of, of the HPA axis. And so, for instance, um, young, healthy, athletic individuals have, they start out lower, but they have this very high peak and then it comes back down. Um, and that's, that shows that they have very active, very plastic stress response. And it's, it's the area of the curve goes way up high and comes back down, but it doesn't obviously last very long because it's coming back down. Um, you know, people with chronic diseases sometimes have a very flat cortisol awakening response. People with chronic fatigue, for instance, um, people with burnout, uh, true burnout, uh, HPA axis burnout would have a very low, e- even though the baseline can be high, the, the, the change between zero and 30 or zero and 45 minutes is very flat. And that's, that's indicative of a very, um, very hypoactive um, uh, HPA axis and stress response. And those same people, if you put them in a psychosocial stressor like the TRI or social stress test, they'll also have a blunted effect because they won't, able, they won't be able to mount a response to that. So, um, but the court, but you know, most clinicians can't do a, a tri or social stress test very well, um, but they, they can do, a, if they do, the cortisol awakening response. So what I've encouraged a lot of the labs in the US to do is, if you're not gonna offer a true cortisol awakening response, which you know, some are starting to do, um, at least make sure that that very first time point is 
absolutely at 30 to 45 minutes. Um, because if you if your window is at 60 minutes, you've missed that. Or if, even if, it, you know, like I said, some people, some of the labs used to say 6 to 8 a.m. Well, if somebody wakes up at 5 a.m. to go to work and uh, decides to take their test at 730, uh, that's that's clearly gonna completely miss what you think is the peak, and then you'll think that first morning cortisol is low, well, you'll have missed the whole peak. So uh, I think there's a lot, of, the other reason I think there's a, a trend here is there's a lot more um, false hypoadrenal measurements because people are, are missing the peak when they're doing the, the test. So I think we're, we're over-diagnosing adrenal, quote, adrenal fatigue because of that as well. Sure, okay, so for in Australia, we're still using the, the typical four points throughout the day. Uh, if the, this isn't available, could they not just complete that test? The, the practitioners has to be really um, specific to their patient. Uh, can you take it at those four time points? They'll get the test results back uh, with, under the profile of the four day points, and they could just ignore the, you know, the, I suppose, the reference ranges of the, the 12 midday and 4 p.m., 8 p.m., and just use that raw data, I suppose, to... Yeah, well, you, uh, I, you know, somebody I, I interviewed, I did an interview with somebody who called that hacking uh, the test. And you, you, I guess theoretically you could tell them, you know, use the first two at time zero, use, you know, second and, and just do it yourself. Obviously, when they plot it out, they're going to plot it across uh, a full day and it's going to look, look a little bit odd. And um, you could do that, I suppose. Um, and... But what I, what I would say is, on, what I actually advocate for is a, a test that has a time zero, a time plus 30, and then has two, I would say three more time points throughout the day. Because um, while the cortisol awakening response is, is probably the most single used test or, or set series of tests in the literature, there's a growing number that are doing this zero, 30, and then usually something maybe 11 o'clock, three o'clock, and then usually before bed. And the before bed is always necessary because you want to be able to see that coming down. Sure. So it's really what I call a diurnal cortisol with a CAR or with a car. And, and essentially what you need to know is the, you, you wanna know the peak and when it is, and you wanna compare that to time zero. So the, really the only thing that you really need to do, I think uh, for most people is include a time zero, and ensure that the plus 30 or the plus 45 or whatever you're gonna choose is done at plus 30. And I think the best way to do that is actually to make them take the first one because then they have a, they have an orientation point from the first saliva test. So you'll, you'll see that quite a bit now in the literature of uh, th throughout a number of HPA access tests, um, this idea of a point zero uh, or time zero and a time plus 30 and then throughout the rest of the day to the diurnal. I think five points would probably get you there. Great. And what are some of the, the variables we need to be mindful of? You know, um, you're waking up, you do your cortisol, then you, you know, your patient hops on Facebook and sees something that gives them fear of missing out or something and makes them all stressed out. Um, what instructions do we need to give our patients about how to sort of get a, uh, a better gauge on their um, stress response? Right, so at least for that first half hour, um, they shouldn't they shouldn't be exercising. I guess I never really thought of like Facebook or something like that, but they probably shouldn't do anything, excuse me, that, that are likely to create some sort of uh, excitement, uh, good or bad, in their life. Um, typically they say, you know, other than drinking water and maybe going to the bathroom, they should just kind of 
chill for that first 30 minutes um, when they do that. Um, they should have access to light. Um, well, actually, what I, what I tell people is if, if you want to measure, it depends on what you're trying to measure. Sure. If you're trying to measure the HPA axis function of their normal life, then they should do everything like they normally do. And then you should just observe based on saliva or the, the cortisol and the DHA and the saliva what is happening. If you want to use waking as a measure of HPA axis uh, initiation, then you should make sure they wake up and have access to light even if they don't normally do that. They should have access to light, open the curtains, make sure they get enough sunlight. That way they'll at least have the best chance of increasing that cortisol awakening response. And, um, and, and so now you're measuring waking as a stressor. So it, it depends on what you're really trying to do. So a lot of people say, well, I normally wake up and I hit the snooze button 10 times. Well, if that's what you normally do, then we can see what that, how ineffective that is or how flat your cortisol awakening response is. But if I want to use it as a test to see how, what your potential is, then I want to actually give you light, make sure you have access to light to see that rise go up. So it really depends on what you're trying to measure. Sure, fantastic. Uh, I think we'll stick with the, this uh, plasticity notion, uh, and it seems to be one of the predominant, I suppose, themes in you know physiology and functional medicine about being flexible with our physiology, whether you know it's for our metabolism with glucose and fatty acids and um, you know neuroplasticity, I suppose, the brain function. Uh, I suppose it's somewhat of a newer concept of this you know plasticity with the cortisol awakening t response, but. Um, You've sort of, you know, framed this up in general physiology with your views on resilience and metabolic reserve. And I think it's really important that we touch upon that because it's um, important to see how, I suppose, our HBA access fits into the bigger picture. So would you just be able to explain that sort of concept? Yeah, so, so the idea of, uh, in, in the idea of lifestyle medicine, just the way I view sort of the way our body is designed to stay healthy, just from, just from the, the get-go. Um, this idea of vitality or the idea that the cells are able to repair themselves, they all have this ability, plasticity, we may call it, or this resilience, this ability to change, whether it's, uh, like you mentioned, uh, glucose, you know, obviously blood glucose goes up, blood glucose is supposed to come down, um, changes in the cortisol over day, changes in oxidative stress. If you just look at this whole cell cycle, the circadian rhythm, this is constant fluctuation. And, and the, the analogy I use is sort of this rubber band, this idea of being able to be stretched and snap back, stretched and snap back. Um, and that resilience over time, obviously, if you do that enough with a rubber band, you know that it may not snap back as well. So there, there are buffering systems within the body. There's in what I call the metabolic reserve. It's the reserve capacity that continues to replenish those buffering systems, as it were, to keep strengthening the rubber band or adding rubber bands as they stretch out. Um, as you begin depleting that and depleting that, let's say with oxidative damage, inflammation, um, in this case also cortisol, just the stress response, the need for, for that response over and over and over starts limiting or starts depleting some of the capabilities of that response and now you don't respond as well. The rubber band doesn't snap back all the way. And um, in many ways the stress response is a global system. It's really a global system that's supposed to measure all threats outside the body, which is what the brain is supposed to consolidate, and all threats inside the body, including glucose and inflammation and these kind of things. So the HPA axis in some ways is a very, it, it, it's a, 
it's like the emergency system of the body. Um, and it's called on to deal with all stressors. And eventually, um, it begins to try to readapt or to, to compensate for some of the lack in some of the tissues. And over time, it doesn't do as well. And so as we, as we wear away that resilience and wear away that metabolic reserve, it's not surprising that the HPA axis is one of those that we can measure. We can measure the adaptation that we see there. Great. Um, so I think one of the risks, I suppose, is when we measure things, we can maybe lose sight of other things and we often can treat the numbers and rather the person. Uh, you've framed up this, I suppose, seven spheres. Would you be able to just describe those? Obviously, the stress response is one which we can measure cortisol, but for a patient who may present with the, the classic adrenal fatigue picture, do you think it's important that we you know, investigate all the other six other spheres to help put that seventh sphere into context right so i think um one of the principles that i say is that if you know if you emphasize in one area only you it's like just like working out you know you just you know you work out one one side of your body you work out everything and so when you're thinking especially when you're taking somebody that has uh, some sort of dysfunction in the hpa axis it's unlikely to come from just one issue or you're going to be able to target one solution. So when you're dealing with stress, which is a quintessential lifestyle sort of uh, phenomena, um, you have to understand where are all the signals coming into that individual that can have an influence on the, the resilience and on the metabolic reserve. And so those seven areas, I, I, I kind of break those into seven areas. We could break them into others, but diet is a diet and, and things related to nutrition, uh, physical activity, um, I think is obviously we know is a big one, stress and, and, the, and the HPA axis. Um, what I call um, circadian rhythm or anything that, that, what I call chronicity, anything that changes the rhythm of life, um, the external environment, um, which actually includes the, in the gut, uh, the, the microbiome in the gut, which is outside of the human body. Um, then there's hygiene and habits, those things that, um, you know, the way that people live, the things that they do, that they, they consider their habits, and then their social structure. A lot of times we don't think about their social structure, but that's really a set of signals that comes in. And in those seven areas, you could clearly see in most of these individuals where there's some dysfunctional signals coming from usually all seven, but certainly of three or four or five of those because they're very coordinated together. Um, so when I, when I uh, tell people to start thinking about stress or really any chronic disease issue is to begin looking at all seven areas to, to, to ask the question. The, the analogy I give is somebody can be eating the, the, per, the most perfect salad. Everything's perfect. They've, they've got the right macronutrients. Everything's fresh. It's organic and there's nothing, uh, there's no pesticides, herbicides, and they're eating it all by themselves, going through a divorce. Um, and, you know, and their children have left them because of you know, whatever issues, whatever. So is that, a, is that salad probably going to do them any good? Well, it might physiologically be doing them good, but everything, other signals are dragging them down and, and it's creating sort of a negative environment where you can't over, overcome that just by eating well. Fantastic. I think it's really important to keep in context when we're um, doing these tests. So you've probably got uh, four key drivers of... Um, disturbed HPA access, um, the stress itself, right. um, glycemic dysregulation, which I think is really interesting, particularly some of these ones for me I probably typically viewed as a, a consequence of, you know, quote-unquote adrenal fatigue. They're hypoglycemic because their, you know, glucocorticoids aren't doing what glucocorticoids are supposed to do and elevate blood sugar. Um, inflammation, perhaps, you know, the anti-inflammatory effects of glucocorticoids. 
and also the circadian rhythm which you talked about. But you essentially and through you know great research and referencing show how these probably drive the HBA access dysfunction as much as a, a, a consequence. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to go through just those four key areas to touch upon how they impact the uh, HBA? So I think when clinicians start thinking about stress, um, they really need to ask the question, what does the brain perceive as a stressor? What, you know, what are those key drivers that are the main imbalance that the hypothalamus takes in and says that we need a, we need a stress response? And, and the one we often think about is perceived stress. When you ask somebody, are you stressed? And you, know, you walk on the street and say, are you stressed? You know, they will talk about you know, my work life, my relationships, my finances. And we know that there's a validated way to understand that the way that we perceive stress, and it's influenced by depression, it's influenced by anxiety, by fear. And we understand that from you know, the amygdala, the hippocampus, we understand sort of the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. We understand how that information comes in. Um, but the three that I think that are often missed are glycemic dysregulation, like you mentioned. Hypoglycemia is one of the uh, gold standard ways of you know, triggering the HPA axis. So uh, remember, it's a glu- cortisol is a glucocorticoid. So it's one of its main functions is mobilizing nutrients, not just glucose, but also uh, fatty acids, amino acids. So it's there essentially to mobilize energy for survival. And so if we, if we, if we have any change in our metabolism, especially hypoglycemia, um, that will be a major stressor because that's seen as something, hypoglycemia can kill you in the next half hour mm-hmm. if you don't adjust properly. Um, circadian rhythm, we don't think about this so much, but um, the, the, the whole idea, I mean, obviously anybody that's measuring cortisol knows that cortisol is a very circadian hormone um, and it's circadian for a reason. It's actually regulating and help regulating a, a whole series of genes. Um, and um, so anytime that you either voluntarily or you know, inadvertently get off circadian rhythm, your sleep pattern changes, jet lag, you're on third shift, second shift, you're, you're doing these kind of things, you're, you're, that's going to be seen as an immediate stressor because once you're off your circadian rhythm, it's the HPA axis that is supposed to get you back on your rhythm because if the cortisol response and other circadian responses in the tissues are off, all your metabolism is going to be off. So it's going to try to push you back as much as possible. So it's going to do that by trying to trigger the cortisol response because cortisol happens to be a very potent circadian uh, rhythm. Um, and also, if you just if you measure one of the most uh, uh, one of the most uh, active ways to, to trigger the HPA axis is inflammatory mediators. So IL six, IL one beta, TNF alpha. These are you know traditional sort of global sort of uh, cytokines that drive the inflammatory uh, pathways are potent HPA axis reg, uh, stimulators. And cortisol, as we know, is also a potent anti-inflammatory. So anytime we have inflammation in the body, even if we, you know, whether it's joint pain, whether it's inflammation in the gut, wherever the, the inflama- inflammatory signals are coming from, that is going to drive the HPA axis. And so these three areas, as well as perceived stress, I certainly don't want to minimize that because the perception of an event is a major driver on the HPA axis. So all, all four of those probably account, I would say, for the majority of modifiable stressors that a, that a clinician is likely to run into. 
Um, if they cover those four bases in most individuals, they're likely going to cover, I would say, 95% of the likely stressors that are triggering. Maybe you might have find some rare genetics or something going on in the brain that would also be doing that, but that's going to cover most of it. Fantastic. I think it's really uh, useful to remember when we're seeing these patients. I think, and you uh, articulate this, probably illustrate more uh, specifically this quite well in your book. You've got some fantastic sort of... Um, strategies and, and uh, hierarchy, I suppose, of how to address these issues with patients. So um, let's move on to treatment. Assume that you've done a, a sort of a comprehensive assessment, you've covered those areas of uh, sleep and inflammation, you've got them on a better diet and so forth. Uh, you've done maybe the, uh, your um, cortisol salivary testing, they've got a, a f- somewhat of a, a flatline awakening response. So what are some of the we've got some traditional i suppose adaptogens that have long been used for you know adrenal fatigue and certainly people get good results um have you got a, a bit of a different view on how these herbs work in terms of addressing the hba uh, dysfunction i think there was the sort of older view that they help you know restore the adrenal glands uh so tell me about the adaptogens and how you think they work so this has been something that you know the use of adaptogens generically have been used for you know decades and decades in different traditions um, and the definition of an adaptogen is very generic just like mm-hmm. the use of a, a, an adaptogen is very generic the idea of the ability to either increase the resilience to stress um, or something that reduces it reduces hyper responsive uh, stress response so it's very generic and, and a lot of times these are also uh, herbs that that give resilience to infectious diseases or, or sort of other immunological things. Um, and it was always assumed that there, it was happening, doing something with the adrenal gland. Um, for the most part, probably the main thing that we've learned about adaptogens today is actually increasing um, heat shock proteins, which is something that people don't really think about, what's a heat shock protein? Um, heat shock proteins are what we call, they're a group of proteins called chaperones. They help proteins fold, essentially. Well, what we don't realize is under stress, there's a lot of misfolding of proteins in all kinds of tissues, including the glucocorticoid receptor. So the glucocorticoid receptor is very, um, it's prone to misfolding and, and needs to be chaperoned, needs to be kind of controlled. And what we believe, at least one of the main uh, things that we believe is that um, the heat shock proteins that are maybe elicited by um, Shisandra and some of these other, uh, you know, there's actually a range of different adaptogens. Not all of them have been shown yet to, to do this, have this work through this method. But to be able to mod- modulate the, the glucocorticoid or the cortisol response at the tissue level, not, not at the adrenal gland, but at the tissue level. But one of the main tissues that we don't often think about is the brain. The brain is actually interpreting cortisol response, and it does that through glucocorticoid receptors. So if probably what most adaptogens are doing, at least as far as we know, are probably working at some other level in the brain or at the, at the tissues to modulate the effects of cortisol. So when we look at do we see changes in cortisol production with adaptogens, we actually don't have much data to suggest that. But we do see a, 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 a dampening of the stress response. So likely what is happening is it's dampening in other places outside the adrenal gland and it's reducing what we might call the, the stress response rather than the actual production of cortisol. 
Um, there's likely other things going on. Certainly adaptogens, we don't have a good grasp on their, their other, there's a few other functions that we know of, uh, maybe probably some genomic effects that we haven't yet deciphered. Um, and so it's possible that there's some, something happening at the adrenal gland or with the ACTH effects. But my suspicion is that most of them we're going to find are going to be working at the tissue level or at the brain level. It's uh, very, very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing more research come out there. Um, I think it's important because people, as I said, you can do the test and that may, in some people, indicate to use a, a herb or not. Um, or conversely, if the, the test is normal, they, they might not use that herb. So uh, you wouldn't necessarily base your herbal prescription just on the, the sole cortisol awakening No, response. so I, I believe, so I, I look at, and if you look at the the, the number of, botanical extracts or herbs or, or adaptogens that people use, um, I typically would recommend a blend. I don't, I don't know that there's any one specific that I would choose over, over another every single time. Um, perhaps um, the one that I would, you know, if you look at, you know, ashwagandha, if you look at shisandra, if you look at rhodiola, if you look at Siberian ginseng, eleuthero, those are kind of the, the four that I think would work in, in any, almost any situation where you have um, either hyperactive or even hypoactive um, because they're adaptogenic and even the, the idea of heat shock proteins they don't necessarily push the system one way or the other they sort of create a balance in between probably the one um, that I would avoid in when the, when there's high cortisol levels would be licorice sure. um, you know because of its effect uh, on the the conversion of uh, cortisol to cortisone and obviously, it, it's more helpful when you have low cortisol levels to increase the licorice. So that would be one where licorice is often considered an adaptogen. The one, um, just personally, and uh, is Panax ginseng. I would typically avoid um, and, and stick more with Siberian ginseng, uh, just because sometimes Panax ginseng can increase excitation. Sure. Um, but this is this is where a clinician needs to realize that each product or each blend may not work at the same dose may not work in the, in the same patient and they they should experiment a little bit with some of these things um, until the patient can kind of get a sense of what what they're doing there great and what about uh, nutrients looking at sort of the allostatic load model that um, sort of you know the springs I suppose wearing out or the I sort of like to think the, the straw that breaks the camel's back can we use like nutrients to sort of create more of a buffer for these patients? And if so, which ones do you think may be useful there? Well, I think um, what I talk about is the idea of building metabolic reserve. So I think if you're building metabolic reserve, you need to build nutrient reserve. So um, I think most of these patients, we need to really make sure they're on a multivitamin, make sure they're, they're at, at, at repletion levels of really everything. Um, we have some evidence that B vitamins and ascorbic acid are used by the adrenal glands. So, I mean, we, so if we're thinking of adrenals in our mind a little bit, we can help there. But obviously, those are going to help with all tissues. I think we, we need to also make sure we have a, a baseline antioxidant reserve, uh, you know, so that if we're thinking about antioxidant reserve, so nutrient reserve, antioxidant reserve, detoxification reserve, you know, all of these, these, these areas where we want all the tissues to be able to handle their own issues so that anything that's coming from the stress response is not going to add another layer of, of burden. Um, and, you know, we could think of the microbiome. We could think of lots of different things there. So I think um, it's critical that those other areas are taken care of, especially when somebody's dealing with a stressor because 
Um, the way I, this, the, the, the analogy that I use is, um, you know, there's not separate roads for the emergency vehicles. Yeah. Everyone has to get off the road and let them through. So there's not a separate way that the stress response affects our tissues. They have to use the same metabolic pathways that are there. And when there's a stress response, those other pathways have to get out of the way until the stress response is done. Well, if that continues and you're not, repl you know, not, not uh, replenishing what is happening in all those tissues, the nutrients, the antioxidants, everything, you are now going to have a problem. Once the, even after the stressor is gone, now those tissues are going to be less able to deal with their own little issues. So that's why I think a clinician needs to think globally when they're dealing with uh, a patient with stress. Fantastic. Uh, and now just for our Australian practitioners, uh, so we've got the, the adaptogens. Some practitioners are you know, tempted to, if we're under this adrenal model, to use things like glandular, extract, glandular extracts, which they may source from overseas. Um, is there any data, is there, are there any data on these and do you think they're necessary or can we get away with not using these? Um, so I, so I, I'm assuming that then a, a, a glandulars are not permitted in Australia, is that what you're saying? Okay. Uh, that's correct, they're not listed yet. So uh, when, I, when I did this uh, project, I looked, I looked uh, everywhere I could to find anybody that had done research on adrenal glandulars. And of course, adrenal glandulars are very old. Uh, in fact, the, the word adrenaline was a first a trademark name uh, from an adrenal glandular, but primarily for its use for uh, adrenaline, epinephrine, not for its cortisol. Um, probably the last I had seen anybody that, that had published anything on hormones related to uh, adrenal glands or adrenal gland extracts was mostly with aldosterone availability. Um, right now in our lab, we are going to be doing a, um, a survey of available glandulars, uh, specifically adrenal glandulars, cortex and total glands for what hormones are in there. Interestingly, in the United States, there's a debate. Some clinicians say, don't use glandulars because there's hormones in them. Others say, don't use glandulars because there's no hormones <laughs> in them. Um, so I would say that the data on the use of, of glandulars, especially, well, am I saying that mostly adrenal glandulars, although I know some people use pituitary and other things as well, really we have no data. Certainly there's not a necessity to use them at all. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to find out if there's any consistency within the available glands that are out there in any hormones, just to see what we would, how we would compare that to, let's say, knowing how much Gland, uh, hormone would be in something like we have with a thyroid glands, like like with with the armor thyroid or something like that. So um, typically, I, I tell clinicians that in the United States, if I'm if I'm have a product, I would want to have a product that was identical without the glandular in it, so that I could use that. There's a lot, of course there's a lot of people even in the U.S. that wouldn't use glandulars for either you know because they're vegetarians or there's other reasons they would avoid that anyway. So we don't have any a lot of evidence, although you have some clinicians that swear by it, uh, but I think it, it, they don't have really anything but anecdotal yeah. evidence at this point. Fantastic. So hopefully that should give uh, practitioners confidence what they've got you know, in their toolbox is, uh, can cover all the manifestations of HBA dysfunction. Okay, so you've been kind enough to uh, allow us some time. With the last few months, can you just explain the books you've written to uh, give 
you know, listeners some further reading material if they want to pursue those. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've really been, uh, get, been given a great opportunity um, to spend probably the last four years writing. I've been writing, of course, all kinds of articles for years and years uh, on the use of supplements, the use of lifestyle in sort of an integrative functional medicine uh, area, but I've really been able to spend um, a lot of time in the last several years really putting together more larger mini textbooks on this. Um, and so um, we, we call it the roadmap series. So the standard we've been having these little monographs that we put out. And so the roadmap series um, through the Point Institute, I've been able to do those. And I'm just finishing up one now on gastrointestinal health. Uh, hopefully it'll be out at the uh, late fall um, in, uh, in the U.S., I guess it would be October, November uh, um, 2016. But um, the one that I've, the last one that we just published was came out about a year ago on the HPA axis, you know, the whole idea of the stress in the HPA axis in chronic disease management. And the nice thing about them is, or at least specifically for this audience, is they're really designed to help teach within the functional medicine community. Um, so um, we've got We've got one on supporting immune function. We've got one on the use of supplements. We call it support, uh, supplementing dietary nutrients. And so these have been really helpful. And obviously now we're, they're available, starting to become available over here. We've had people order actually online and we've been shipping them over to Australia. But um, I think we're gonna try to find a way to get them easier into the hands of, of uh, the Australian and maybe even beyond that out here in this community. So check with A5M, check with uh, other people like that. They might be available. Fantastic. That's, um, yeah, I can't uh, recommend them high enough, particularly the, the role of stress and the HBA access on in chronic disease management. As I was saying to Thomas earlier, to me it reads like a 150-page research article that's fully referenced. Uh, I'm very envious of the diagrams. I think they've Fantastic. Uh, we might still have a few, few slides. We'll, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, there, we, we'll pay we have, homage to it. Yeah, yeah, we have a great we have a great uh, graphic designer that helped us put together a lot of that. It's really they've turned out really well. Yeah, it really helps sort of explain how HBA dis- uh, function, you know, impacts the rest of the body and vice versa. So we'll um, we'll put some links up on our, our website for those books. So, Dr. Williams, I really uh, appreciate your time, and uh, we'll certainly look forward to seeing more of your publications and hearing from you in the future. Oh, thanks. I love it. Love uh, the opportunity to talk about these things. Fantastic. Thank you.